Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 76. Our big Bible question of the day, what teaching of Jesus drove the most people away? Hashtag eat my flesh, drink my blood. And yes, you heard that right. Well, before we get too deep into the show, I want to give a shout out to Courtney Johnson, who left a really encouraging review for the show on iTunes. He says... I love the Bible reading podcast. I look forward to it every morning. If you are looking for a great Bible study, this is the podcast. Chase has a great sense of humor, which makes it fun. He really puts a lot of time on each day's podcast. It's never rushed, always professional and well-researched. Well, Courtney, I appreciate more than you can know those kind words. I don't know about the great sense of humor and the professional part, but it is appreciated much the same. If you would like to read us a review, um, make us a review and get it on iTunes. That would be fantastic. It's one of the ways that helps this podcast uh, recorded in an office in sunny Salinas, California, reach more people. Then uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Share the show on Facebook and social media. My goodness, half of the country is sort of shut in right now, and maybe that'll give them something to do to pass the time and to point us to the Word of God. So hello to you all, and welcome into the show. I hope you are staying safe out there. This Sunday, yesterday, was the first time in over 25 years of ministry that I have been part of a church that canceled the Sunday gathering for anything that wasn't a storm or it's like you know snow tornadoes hurricane related it was it was heart-wrenching to do that i think it was the right choice but i gotta tell you it bothers me in a deep place and i guess that's the thing about leading in a crisis sometimes there is not a good choice uh, maybe some of you are facing the same thing, and may the Lord give us all wisdom as we navigate through this time. I read a quote today from a school superintendent, and he said, In the end, it will be impossible to know if we overreacted or did too much, but it will be quite apparent if we underreacted and did too little. Well, I think that's a good word of wisdom. Now, if you're interested, we live-streamed our church's worship and prayer time today, not from the sanctuary of the church, but from uh, the living room of my house with our family present. Um, my wife, uh, Janet, played a piano, and some of my daughters sang with her, and uh, we also played some songs through uh, our phone over the speaker, and we just we just sang and we worshiped, and we prayed to God, and people on the live stream prayed and encouraged each other with their comments. And if it wasn't such a tragic and sort of scary situation, and if it wasn't such a bummer that we weren't together in person, it was really kind of cool. It was not a substitute for being together. But if I'm being honest, it was a lot better than I thought it would be, interacting with those people that I love so much. And it hurts me not to be able to see them up close and shake hands and hug necks and all that kind of stuff. The message, if you want to see it, is available on the video at facebook.com. Just search for VBC Salinas, or you can search for me, Chase A. Thompson. I posted it on my Facebook feed. It's called Pandemic Wisdom. Now, we had some lighting difficulties and a little bit of sound difficulties, but, you know, it was our first time broadcasting worship word and prayer from our house. We always live stream our services on Sunday morning, but that feeds into the soundboard, and this was a different sort of thing. So I 
I think we'll learn from it and improve. We're going to do the same thing for Wednesday night this week. And going forward, who knows? We'll see. God knows. Stay safe out there, brothers and sisters. And as we go through this crisis, I exhort you and I exhort me to radiate the love and comfort of grace through the word of God and his gospel. So our passages today are Exodus 27, Proverbs 3, John chapter 6, and Galatians chapter 2. Our focus passage is in John 6, and it's honestly one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. For one, Jesus addresses head-on a topic that I've seen many Christians and some churches split over, predestination. By the end of the chapter, uh, you actually will see this eerily enough in John six sixty six. Many of the people who were following Jesus up until that point said, ah, I'm out, that's it, because of what he taught in John 6. And one of the things he taught that is really, really jarring, and on the surface kind of gross and super weird, for us in the 21st century to hear is in verses 53 through 56, where he says, Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Eugh. Wow. What's going on here? Now, let me just be honest with you. If I'd been one of Jesus' disciples and I heard him teach that, I might have pulled him aside and did the same dumb thing that Peter did when Jesus announced his plans to be crucified. I probably would have tried to be like, Jesus, ma'am, maybe we could think about our language a little bit here. You're going to freak people out. And you know what? I might have received the same treatment saying something dumb like that to the Lord of all as Peter did. Jesus might have just said, hey, get behind me, Satan. But the fact remains that this particular teaching of Jesus is worded in such a way that we are I don't know, stunned to read it and to hear it and wonder what in the world Jesus is talking about. So let's do this. Let's read John 6 together and then come back and discuss it. And uh, it's kind of a long passage, but it's it's an amazing one. So uh, hang in there. I think the discussion is going to be really good. And the word of God here is so deep and so rich. You could preach 50 sermons or more out of John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to save a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down, and the men numbered about 
thousand. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This truly is the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum to looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you leave? And when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to do the works of God? they asked. Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one believes in me who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews started complaining about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven?
Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe in the one who would betray him. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. Let me start our discussion with a strange question. Where does food come from? I suspect if you asked children today, they would say, well, food comes from the grocery store or Walmart, Safeway, Publix, something like that. People a hundred years ago wouldn't have said that. They would probably have said Food came from the general store, but 200 years ago, they might have said food came from, you know, plants and animals, from the fields and hunting the forest, vastly different from today. Similarly, if I were to ask you, wherever you're listening, whether you're in Louth, Ireland, or whether you're in Dundee, Scotland, or whether you're in Vietnam or the Philippines or Australia, or whether you're in one of the provinces of Canada, Manitoba, Ontario, or wherever you might be listening, if I were to ask you, what is the staple food of your region? What food do you live on? 
That would be an odd question for most of us, because most of us, at least in the West, live on such a wide variety of food. Billions, however, including some of our listeners in China, Japan, and Indonesia, and Malaysia, and Vietnam, and the Philippines, you guys might be saying, rice. Our staple food is rice, or maybe rice and fish. Now, in the first century of Israel, the people ate bread and fish as their staple food. Morning, noon, and evening, that was their food. I mean, they ate some other things as well, but bread and food, that was their sustenance. Bread was the main one. Keep that in mind today as we ponder what Jesus is saying to us. Now, one more kind of weird question. Why do you work? Most people, I guess, would say, well, I work to make money, right? You know, why do you make money? Well, you make money to pay the bills, uh, to buy stuff and that sort of thing. But in the first century, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 80 to 85% of the money that laborers made went to food. So if you ask them then, hey guys, why do you work? They would look at you and say, well, we work to eat. You need to understand these things in order to understand what Jesus is saying to us in John chapter 6. Now, I'm not a statistician, but I'm going to go all Bible code on you for just a moment. The word bread appears, you know, depending on the translation of the Bible, somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 times in the entire Bible. Now, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and that means that the word bread appears on average one in about every 4.8 chapters. So that's the frequency, one appearance of the word bread for every 4.8 chapters. In John 6, however, the word bread appears 19 times at a frequency over 95 times greater than what is to be expected on average. Now, looking at something like that, is one way that we can arrive at the theme of a particular Bible passage. Now, even though the theme of this passage is bread, I do want to briefly mention a pretty um, controversial topic, and that is predestination. It's honestly one of the most controversial theological topics there is. It might really be just number one. I have seen, I might have mentioned this before, maybe not, but I've seen Three families leave one church. This was 11 years ago or so. I was pastoring a church. Three families left because two people that were not me, that were at a Wednesday night Bible study in the audience, brought up the topic of predestination at a Wednesday night Bible study and signaled that they agreed with it. So, I mean, I've seen this thing be a huge controversy. And I have spent hour upon hour upon hour in my younger days when I enjoyed such things a little bit more debating the finer points of predestination. I don't intend to do that today, and I don't intend to ignite a controversy among our listeners, but let's at least brush by this issue because we're going to encounter the word predestination. Yes, it's in the Bible more than once as we get into the book of Ephesians, even as we go forward. So John 6 verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39 says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me. Verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now that sort of tells us that 
He's not just talking about his 12 disciples. He's talking about everybody. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, that's a pretty great summary of how biblical predestination works. This dialogue in John 6. Uh, there's going to be some people in the sovereignty camp uh, or the, the heavy Presbyterian camp who focus exclusively on Jesus' words like, have I not chosen you, the twelve? On the other hand, there'll be some people that tend a little bit more towards Arminianism or free will that focus on Peter's words. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. Now, here's the thing. Both of those things are true. Followers of Jesus have made real, unforced, genuine decisions to believe in him, just like Peter said. Likewise, as Jesus has said, he chose them, not vice versa. You see that in John fifteen sixteen. If Jesus is telling the truth, and he is, nobody can come to Jesus unless they are drawn first by the Father. Both of these things are true. Now, I believe Jesus' words are above Peter's words, if that's a way of thinking about it, just like I believe that the sovereignty of God overarchs man's free will. But both are real and true things. So when it comes to salvation, I believe that the greatest power or force is not human choice, but God's divine sovereignty. God's sovereignty does not nullify free will or choice, but it does dwarf those things theologically. If you have strong opinions about this issue, you know what? You're welcome to them. Just be sure, and I need to be sure too, that our grandest focus is on Jesus, on the gospel, the greatest commandments, and the great commission. And now to the uh, even more stark words of Jesus in this passage. Eat my flesh and drink my blood is a powerful way of speaking, to say the least. And I believe that Jesus was here being intentionally provocative and powerful. But that sort of speech isn't 100% foreign to our modern way of speaking. I bet some of you, as we go through this uh, quarantine-type situation with the pandemic, some of you are going to devour a few good books. Or maybe you're going to drink up an amazing lecture. Or you're going to chew over some ideas. Or you're going to ruminate over a decision. All of the, these are phrases we use. And if you devour a great book, I suspect that doesn't literally mean you're going to put it in your mouth and eat it. And I don't think Jesus literally means that we are to put him in our mouth and eat him. So bringing that up, is Jesus talking about communion here? The breaking of the bread and the drinking of the juice. And honestly, I think the non-simple answer here is that Jesus is not completely talking about communion here, but there's obviously a very real connection. Go to the Last Supper passages. Note how Jesus held up the bread and said that it was his body broken for them, and this juice was his blood spilled for them. Now, here's the thing. Rather than John 6 looking forward to communion and ultimately indicating that people would 
would really eat Jesus' flesh in communion, I believe that the Last Supper passage looks back at what Jesus is saying and doing in John chapter 6, where Jesus is reminding his disciples that they are called to a daily bread type of following him. Remember, Jesus in the the Lord's Prayer teaches us to ask God for our daily bread. Does that mean food? Yes. Does it mean everything we need to survive also? I think so. And I think that's the kind of thing Jesus is telling us here, and that his body and blood, broken and shed on the cross, are daily life to us as believers. The gospel that saved us will be the gospel that sustains us every day, just as, for the first century people, bread and juice sustained their biological life. Those people could no more live without the daily intake of Jesus's broken body and blood through faithful believing in the good news and abiding in Jesus than they could live without daily food, and we can't either. So I believe Jesus is teaching us something incredibly profound and deep in this passage. And it's one of those things where if you just surface look at it, you're just like, ew, yuck, skip to the next passages. I don't even care what he's saying there. But if you really dig and really, really think, then you're going to be rewarded with some profound truth here. And if some of these things are are really difficult to understand, I want to invite you to come to the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, where you can read this and think about it. And you might say, oh my goodness, he thinks he's so brilliant here. Some of the ideas I'm presenting to you that are really that brilliant, (laughs) they didn't come from me. I got them from somebody who is genuinely brilliant, Dr. D.A. Carson. He really helped me years ago when I preached on this passage. He really helped me understand what Jesus is saying here. So you can pick up my summary of some of that at BibleReadingPodcast.com, or you can go check out Dr. Carson's book, For the Love of God. It's kind of thick because he's really, 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 really smart. But, uh, man, he's great. He's one of my favorite scholars. So, in an agrarian society, a farm society, they understood something that we don't. And that is, in order for life to be sustained, we have to eat dead things. Life is sustained by the death of something else. When Jesus fed the thousands, they ate dead wheat and dead fish. When you and I go to Chick-fil-A, we are eating dead chicken, dead wheat, dead pickles. And it's delicious, and I wish I had some now. Things that had, those are things that had to die in order to sustain us. Jesus is saying to us and to his true followers that the only way for him to give us eternal life is for him to die and us to daily consume him and the good news of that death. Apart from daily abiding in Jesus, as we're taught in John 15, then we are able to do Nothing. Just like you are weak apart from daily liquid and caloric intake, just like I am, apart from Jesus, we will die. Now, most American religious people, I guess, have a one-time view of the gospel. In other words, we believe it once, deciding to follow Jesus, and then we're good to go. Now, this is absolutely foreign to what Jesus was actually teaching. Instead, he calls us to follow him daily, 
responding to his call to follow him, taking up our cross daily. He calls us to daily bread. You want to see how this sort of works? Try eating one meal a month or one meal in a lifetime. Eating doesn't work that way, and neither does faith. This is what I believe Jesus is sharing with us here in these profoundly disturbing but profoundly deep words. Now, after Jesus fed the people and then crossed over on the lake and they were looking for him, when the people found Jesus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they might have wanted more food, another miracle, but they didn't understand what that miracle actually signified or signified. In other words, what sign it showed them. In this particular case, these people were seeking Jesus at a surface level for another miracle, more food. They didn't realize he was giving them a sign that he himself was the living bread, that he was to be their sustenance and their life. After he told them that, he told them not to work for the food that perishes. In other words, not to have a work-based approach to God. But you know what? It zoomed right over their head. Because how do we know it zoomed right over their head? Whoosh! Because they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, these people, like so many of us in the church in America and around the West, they are religionists, not so much understanding the gospel, but understanding religion very well. They have a, the typical mindset of religion, which is a viewpoint of God that if we scratch his back, then he will scratch our backs. In other words, what can we do for God to get him to do what we want or need? That's paganism. It's quid pro quo. It's tit for tat. And it's the dominant religious view in America. The dominant religious view in America is not biblical Christianity. I I wish it was. Maybe it was at one point. It is certainly not that now. The dominant religious view in America right now, influenced by some aberrant word of faith teaching and some other stuff that many churches can take responsibility for, the, the dominant viewpoint in America right now is not biblical Christianity. It's tit for tat. It's quid pro quo. Let's get God on our side by doing things. What do we do to please God so that he can please us or he can rescue us? And when these people said, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, I mean, I can almost envision him shaking his head, knowing they don't understand. He says, the work that God requires you to do is to believe on me. If you really think about it, you've got to realize that that's either incredibly arrogant and fanatical of Jesus, if he's just, you know, a great teacher, or it's profoundly amazing. If you were reading this book, the Bible, as an atheist or non-believer, you would read this as the stark saying that it is. Are you kidding me? The thing that makes this God happy is to believe in this guy? Who the heck is he? And the Jews for once, understand what Jesus is saying here. It offends them, and they demand that he proves that he is worthy of that kind of faith. 
One day of feeding the thousands, as amazing as it is, it is, it's not enough to prove it. Maybe if they, maybe if Jesus gave them bread for years, it might be. And that's what they're doing. They're demanding that Jesus keep providing for them temporal, temporary blessings. Bread that would have fed their bodies for years, but honestly done nothing to stave off death ultimately. In the present, as we look back hundreds of years, what good would it have been if Jesus had fed them every day, if that's all that Jesus did for them? What good would it have been if Jesus had healed them every day, if that's all that Jesus had did for them? Ultimately, they would have died at some point, even of just old age. Then they would be long dead and hellbound with stomachs full of miracle bread. But big whoop, who cares? They wouldn't have been saved. So Jesus was about more than just giving them a meal. He was about giving them himself as daily bread. Even today, hundreds of millions of Christians, quote, Christians, uh, think this way. We have a child in the hospital. What can we do to make God hear our prayers and heal our child? We have a big exam exam to take. How can we make God happy with us so that he'll hear our prayers and help us pass our exam? How can we get God to give us what we need or what we want? There's a pandemic of coronavirus spreading and killing people. How can we get God to protect us and heal us? That's the view of God that most American Christians Jins, in quotes, still have. Maybe most religious people in your country too. But here's the thing with God. He is perfectly happy in and of himself. He's not lonely. The Trinity is a perfect relationship. He's perfectly content. Perfectly. What does perfectly mean? It means he needs nothing. Have you ever tried to shop for a Christmas present or a birthday present for somebody that, you know, has everything? It's hard, even though they don't literally have everything, but it's hard. But In this case, God does. He has everything. We have nothing that can persuade him. It'd be sort of like trying to bargain with, uh, I don't know, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates with a penny. They don't need our money. God needs nothing. He's never needed anything. That means... There's no bargaining with God. No tit for tat. No, I'll do this if you do that, God. He has no needs. None. So is that bad news? I don't think so. Knowing God is fully content and possesses everything, how can we please him? And here's the radical, actually really good news answer is, have faith in Jesus. Follow Jesus with your life. Now, that's mind-blowing and revolutionary, probably even to some of you listening to this podcast. Your job is not to please God with all of your activities and actions. Your job is to please God by who you believe in. Who you believe in and the faith that is in Jesus is the very thing that will actually empower and enable you to do all of the deeds that God calls you to do, but doesn't need you to do. Faith without deeds is dead, says James in the the New Testament, but we show our faith, which comes first, by what we do, which is an outflow of faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, my friends, we have to stop trying to earn our way into God's graces. You'll never, ever, ever do it. It will wear you out and make you bitter and hateful. You know people like that. Burn out on church, burn out on God, bitter, angry, sad, forlorn, always feeling rejected. In so many cases, 
These people tried to buy their way into heaven, not by giving money, but by doing good deeds, by going to church, by reading the Bible, and everything they did fell short because they didn't have enough good deeds to buy their way into God's graces. The only thing that doesn't fall short is having the kind of faith in Jesus that will produce fruit in actions which is the very thing most religious people have never tried. We don't have to try to please God. We can't. It's Again, it's like trying to bribe Bill Gates. I couldn't come close to it because he has so much more money than I do. But what God calls us to is faith in his son, Jesus. So my question to you, and I realize I'm almost sermonizing here, what of you? Are you tired of working for bread that's here today and gone tomorrow? Are you weary of trying to please God and always wondering where you stand in Him? So I have a direct word of Jesus to you. And He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and He will give you rest. Believe the gospel. Follow Jesus That is the thing that will please God and will guarantee you eternal life in heaven. Now, let's read Exodus. Exodus chapter 27, verse 1, you are to construct the altar of acacia wood. The altar must be square, seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. It must be four and a half feet high. Make horns for it on its four corners. The horns are to be of one piece. Overlay it with bronze. Make its pots for removing ashes and its shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans. Make all of its utensils of bronze. Construct a grate for it of bronze mesh and make four bronze rings on the mesh at its four corners. Set it below under the altar's ledge so that the mesh comes halfway up the altar. Then make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Construct the altar with boards so that it is hollow. They are to make it just as it was shown to you on the mountain. You are to make the courtyard for the tabernacle. Make hangings for the south side of the courtyard out of finely spun linen, 150 feet long on that side, including 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and silver bands for the posts. And so make hangings 150 feet long for the north side, including 20 posts in there, 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and silver bands for the posts. For the width of the courtyard, make hangings 75 feet long for the west side, including their 10 posts and their 10 bases. And for the width of the courtyard on the east side toward the sunrise, 75 feet. Make hangings 22 and a half feet long for one side of the gate, including their three posts and their three bases. And make hangings 22 and a half feet long for the other side, including their three posts and their three bases. The gate of the courtyard is to have a 30-foot screen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. It is to have four posts and their four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to be banded with silver and have silver hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard is to be 150 feet long, 75 feet wide at each end, and 7.5 feet high, all of it made of finely spun linen. The bases of the posts are to be bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its tent pegs as well as the tent pegs of the courtyard are to be made of bronze. 
you were to command the Israelites to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light in order to keep the lamp burning regularly. In the tent of meeting outside the curtain that is in the front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to tend the lamp from evening until morning before the Lord. This is to be a permanent statute for the Israelites throughout their generations. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she is more profitable than silver, and her revenue is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can equal her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths peaceful. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her, and those who hold on to her are happy. The Lord founded the earth by wisdom, and established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the watery depths broke open, and the clouds dripped with dew. Maintain sound wisdom and discretion. My son, don't lose sight of them. They will be life for you and adornment for your neck. Then you will go safely on your way. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When You you will lie down and your sleep will be pleasant. Don't fear sudden danger or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your feet from a snare. When it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. Don't say to your neighbor, go away, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when it is there with you. Don't plan any harm against your neighbor, for he trusts you and lives near you. Don't accuse anyone without cause when he has done you no harm. Don't envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the devious are detestable to the Lord, but he is a friend to the upright. The Lord's curse is on the household of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. The wise will inherit honor, but he holds up fools to dishonor. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 1, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel. I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me, God doesn't show favoritism, 
they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the un to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild these things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ." And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Amen. Praise God for the death of Christ. Brothers and sisters, stay safe out there. Cling to the cross. Cling to the gospel. Cling to the Savior and spread his hope to a fearful and panicked society right now. May the Lord bless you. Godspeed.